Tonight, the, uh, the issue, where did the universe come from? Genesis 1, the creation account. Have you ever just been out on a night and you see the stars and you're somewhere away from the big city, the big metropolis of Rocky Mount, Virginia, and you, you look up and you see the stars, they seem like they're all spotlights, and you're just like, man, that is huge. Then you remember back to seventh grade science class about how we realized that what we can see is nothing compared to what the universe actually is. And that's simply what we know. It's just absolutely, um, to, use, to use the words of Elf, absolutely ginormous. So the, the issue for us as Christians is we do have something. If you have your Bibles, we're just going to be basically in Genesis 1 tonight. We have a very curious verse, a very curious phrase in the beginning of the Bible, and it's Genesis 1.1. Does anybody know that by heart want to take a stab at it? I'm, here, I'm hearing some... Yeah, in the beginning, okay, so there was a what? A beginning, okay, there was a beginning, and in the beginning, who was the one who acted? God, and what did he do? Okay, so number one, you have a beginning. Number one, if we could go, if we could go back and just imagine sitting, kind of looking over awkwardly, like if you ever had somebody look awkwardly over your shoulder when you're reading something, I can't stand that. It freaks me out. It just makes me like, please don't do that. That's one of my pet peeves, all right? I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm reading a lame paper or what. I'm like, that just creeps me out. But imagine if we could go back and we could look as Moses was pinning the very first word in Genesis 1.1. If we could have been in that culture, in that ancient Near East culture, if we would have seen the word beginning, we would have wanted to scream to Moses, don't use that word. Because if you use the word beginning, you're going to alienate everybody. Do you know that, that Genesis 1.1, we, we, a lot of us, if we've been raised in church, we see, okay, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, let's move on. But that was a radical, radical statement because basically everyone in the ancient Near East believed that the universe was cyclical. It means that there wasn't a point of beginning. In fact, Buddhist philosophy still teaches that today, that the universe is in, is in an endless cycle of rebirth, destruction, rebirth destruction, all of Eastern philosophy has this cyclical mindset. So when you see a word in there, beginning, if we would have had some of our church growth strategists from today tell Moses, they would say, Moses, you've got, you've, you've got to present this in a way that's appealing to culture. This isn't even Christ confronting. Remember the, the ways that people view Christianity and culture? One is like Christ against culture. One is like Christ agreeing with culture, like letting the culture influence the church. And the other one, uh, what is it, um, confronting culture. I forgot what the other one is. But, but this is like uh, the church or Christianity or truth kicking culture in the face. This is a radically offensive statement. The fact and the point that the universe actually had a beginning. And we're going to look at something that we learned about Ernest Hubble. He was the one who actually observed the expanding universe. So this is something that was foreign even until not too long ago um, in our scientific realm. So here's a phrase that I would write down uh, on your notes. It's ex nihilo, which literally means from nothing. Okay? That's, that's the Christian doctrine of creation, that God didn't create with used stuff. God didn't go to the cosmic goodwill and find something and make something out of it. It was that literally God created everything, and there wasn't anything 
physical that God used to pull that off. Meaning that God brought the world into the existence simply because of the word of his mouth, which is very cool. And we're actually going to see how that Sunday school-ish type of phrasing is actually supported by both science and philosophy now. Can you believe that? There are people who are teaching with, with PhDs from Urn. I mean, big, anyway, I don't think, it's great, all right? Uh, or ex material. Did God create the world from nothing or with something? Here's a great statement by Frank Turek in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. He says, and that's a great title, right? It takes more faith to be a non-Christian than it does to be a Christian. Very interesting. So, where did the universe come from? That's the first question. There are going to be two responses to this question of where the universe came from. Number one is that the universe is eternal, which means that the universe has always been here. It means if you go back and 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 you still find um, Andy Griffith shows reruns, you know, like a however many billion years ago, and then you go back and you go, you're still going to find that the universe was here. Um, this would be what Aristotle believed. In fact, Aristotle, um, the philosopher, he said that the universe or the world was caused by the quote, and I would write this down, the unmoved mover. You think about dominoes, right? If you ever played a game, game of dominoes, and then you set up your dominoes in a little row, and before your brother or sister came by and accidentally kicked the table and knocked them all down, you flicked that first domino, and the end domino was knocked down by the one behind it, and the one that was behind it was knocked down by the one behind it, and then you go forth. There cannot be infinite causality. There's got to be something that puts it all in motion. Well, Aristotle was raised in a time where the Greeks believed the universe was eternal, but he said that doesn't make sense. So what he said is that there was this capital U, unmoved mover, something or someone who simply started everything. We'll see how he kind of got it right in a little bit. Okay? Uh, the second response here would be that the universe actually began to exist at some point in the past. Now, I want you to go with me on this thought. If the Bible is true, and if the current view of science is correct, that the, that the universe began to exist, then before the universe began to exist, the universe did not what? Exist. Awesome. Uh, this is Ernest Hubble with his professorish pipe. I don't know why. I guess that, that they thought the elevated um, intelligence, but... Uh, he actually was a um, veteran of World War I, probably went through a lot of very difficult things, went to the Los Angeles area, began to, um, to look through a telescope, observe the Earth, and this is from our fundamentalist friends at the History Channel. This is their little 50-second uh, treatment on Ernest Hubble that will help us understand. Faster, has a larger red shift. But Hubble found that 
Those faster moving galaxies are also farther away. That meant the greater the redshift, the more distant the galaxy. Very interesting. So what we, what we found out in the early 1920s is that the universe is expanding. This guy right here, Albert Einstein, the man of science, it took everything for Einstein to actually admit that this was true. Do you know why? Because Einstein was smart. Amen? All right? God gave the man an intellect. But one thing that Einstein wasn't really comfortable with was a universe that began at some point in the past. Why would that be awkward? Well, if the universe began at a point in the past, we've got to ask the question, what brought it into being? If we say it was just matter that was compacted and blew up, well, where did the matter that was compacted and blew up come from? It simply pushes the question back one step. And he was smart enough to know that, and he was of what ethnicity? Anybody remember? Jewish. Jewish from, from Germany. So he would have read, and we're actually going to read some Hebrew here in just a second, he would have read this, and I am almost certain that when Einstein found this to be true, Hubble's telescope, expanding universe, that brought him back to Genesis 1-1, and it freaked him out, all right? So... Um, Years ago, let's we'll read this statement, uh, people thought the universe was eternal, but most scientists no longer hold that position for two reasons, okay? So this, this is, if you have a, uh, an unsaved friend, an atheist, agnostic, non-Christian friend, doesn't believe the Bible, uh, thinks that church is lame, hates business meetings, they might be right about the business meetings, but uh, <laughs> give them two scientific reasons, okay? And th this, is, this, is not, this is not from an apologetics book, you can, you can read that, it's any secular science book, okay? Number one, entropy. The universe is running down. Secondly, the expanding universe. In fact, there's actually 14 verses in the Bible about the universe expanding. Hmm. Very, very interesting. You know that people back then had to, before the pre-scientific people reading the Bible, like the universe is expanding. Right? In Job, God stretches out the heavens. Like, what in the world does that mean? I mean, I understand it's somewhat poetic, but stretching it, I mean, that just makes no sense. Why would God stretch the universe? Well, if you understand the universe is expanding, it is doing exactly that. Isn't this cool? I, I love this stuff. Okay. Um, so the observational scientific view, the view today, which this is not necessarily a theory, it's what you can, any of us can look through a telescope and see this. It's not really like a theory thing. You, you can actually look and, and see it. You've got Ernest Hubble, uh, Albert Einstein. These are the people who believe this. And also, this is interesting, if you're talking to an evolutionist friend or a person who believes in Darwinism, say, in fact, if you believe in the Big Bang, you believe that the universe had a point. And that's where a lot of Christians get really hung up to say, well, the Big Bang is, is bad. Well, we obviously know from the Bible and from science that, that you can't just take random stuff and compact it together in a vacuum and it blow up and it create everything, right? I mean, that, that's, almost, that's almost like a Bob Marley lyric, right? From when he was really hammering down on some, you know, some green herb there, okay? So, <clears throat> but when we think of Big Bang, we should think in our minds of the equal sign, there's a beginning. Now, obviously, we disagree with, with an atheist who would say that it's stuff that just blew up. There was some type of a beginning. 
So the scientific argument number one, the Big Bang cosmology. You can actually use this against uh, atheists. The Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe indicates that the universe had a beginning. Um, one piece of evidence here is the redshift that they talked about on the video. This would be the redshift of light from distant galaxies um, indicating that the universe is expanding. So one thing, if you want to write this on your notes, this may help. Think of when a car or when a siren on a police car or an ambulance is coming towards you, right? It's kind of like, and then once it passes you, it's almost like a rise and fall. That's the same thing with redshift. If it's moving towards you, you've got blue shift, okay? So if you ever have an angry person coming at you, you can just start screaming blue shift, and they won't know what you're talking about. It may throw them off just enough time to get away. Um, if, it's, if it's here in the happy Sesame Street-ish color, that means it's at rest. But when it's moving away, you've got redshift. And do you know what we see through a telescope for all of these galaxies? We see redshift. So if they're moving away, imagine if we could go old school, and I still have VHS tapes. In fact, I buy them sometimes at, at book sales to aggravate my brother Josh, because he hates anything old. Everything has to be new technology. I'm like, hey, Josh, you want to come over and watch a VHS? Oh, no. I'm like, you're going to be here for Christmas. I'll have them all lined out. It's going to be awesome. You can just come over and watch them go crazy. But imagine. Yeah, actually, that'd be great. Actually, I found a, um, it's going to be a Godzilla uh, VHS tape. And, and the storyline there was actually so that they could begin doing nuclear testing in the ocean. I'm like, that's a great thing. Yeah, that's what we need. All right. Anyway, back to this. Um, if we could imagine that the universe was a VHS tape. Remember those VHS tape rewinders that you wouldn't wear out your VCR? If you could just put the universe in a rewinder, if you rewound the expanding universe, it would come back to a point of, in the, help me out again, Genesis 1-1, in the, very interesting. Objection number one, so here's what people say against it. Now, we can adopt an oscillating universe model, the main rival to the Big Bang. This is what Stephen Hawking propagates here. One, um, which means that the universe didn't have a point of beginning. Was, we'll, we'll look at a picture here. Um, this picture here, this is what we understand the universe to be. Um, every time you eat an ice cream cone that's actually a cone, that's not a cup cone, that's not really a cone, we should think of this. The bottom of the cone represents the point of the beginning of the universe. That's when all time and space began to exist. And when it, when it came into being, it's been, it's been expanding ever since, which that's what we see through the telescope lens. And that's exactly what Scripture says in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. So, cones remind us of beginnings. Hawking says that there is no point here, but it's kind of rounded off like a test tube. Here's um, one thing, several replies we can give against that. There's no known physics describing a bang-crunch transition. In other words, the, the, the classic Big Bang model that says everything was compacted really, really tight, and then it boom, blew up um, and formed everything. Number two, there's no known physics um, describing, actually, is that the same thing? Oh, the crunch bang. Okay, go to number three. The second law of thermodynamics is against a 100% efficient 
bang, crunch, bang, transition. We'll look at a really, I love this picture. We're going to look at it in a second. It'll illustrate that. Number four, there couldn't have been an actually infinite number of past cycles because of the problem with an actual infinite. There is hardly any uh, philosopher or scientist today who will tell you that the universe is, is absolutely infinite. So um, here's, here's the best one, I think, to respond against people who say that the universe did not have a point of beginning. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And this is basically I'm um, saying that in a closed system, everything goes from a state of order to disorder. Think about a car. Okay, We buy a brand new sports car. We put that car outside. We put signs all around it say, do not disturb scientific experiment in progress. Okay, And we come back 30 years later. What do we find has happened to the car? Okay, all right, rust, rot, okay, probably got some little friends living in the, in, the, in the seats in the car, right, you're sitting down, and bugs come out, that type of thing, it just goes down. So um, here's the second law of thermodynamics, also called entropy, um, illustrated. You think of old age, okay? <laughs> Well, that's, a, that's a little bit disturbing. Let me give you one last picture. Think back to your kid pictures when you were a child, and is that not scary? All right? You've got a kid with way too much energy and an older man with way too much energy. Okay? Age itself. And I love to look at, not, not to be a creeper, when you go into people's houses, it's cool to see the pictures that they have of, of them and their fans, but you can notice the change of people through the years. Right? Entropy means that physical things suffer the effects of entropy. It means that things simply just are tearing down. This is a great, I would write this statement down. This, this makes so much sense. Here, it's from Norman Geisler. If the universe is unwinding, in other words, if the universe is running down, then it was what? Wound up. So if the universe is actually losing usable energy, then there has to be a point to where it had more. And if you say that it's eternal, then that's, that's a non sequitur. That, that's, that simply cannot be proven. So here's another way to, to prove it. Um, this is, we're looking at a lot of big stuff tonight, but this will all, all be online too if you guys want a, want a copy of this. Um, the Kalam cosmological argument. Okay, here it goes. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, a lot of times Christians get hung up on this. Um, how long has God existed? Exactly. Was there ever a day to where the triune God just came into existence? No. See, now hold on. I thought that we just said that everything was subject to entropy, that everything's going from a state of order to disorder. We mean all physical things, Right? Remember what, what Jesus said God is? God is what? Spirit. Spirit. Very interesting. All right? So that means that God can exist and not suffer the ravages of old age. Because some people ask very honestly, not trying to, to, to be jerks. They say, well, man, if God is, has always existed, is God really old? <clears throat> Good question. But if we understand what the Scripture says, that God is spirit, then God never had a point of beginning, therefore, this argument would not apply to God. So, number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Okay, like if you go into your house tonight and find, uh, let's say, a, a horse in your living room, you 
probably wouldn't come to the conclusion, wow, this randomly happened with no reason, okay? You probably think of your friend who has the greatest propensity for practical jokes, give him a call and say, bring the horse trailer over, okay? Relative. Yeah, a relative. Um, number two, the universe began to exist, okay? And if anybody disagrees with premise number two, that's kind of strange. Like, the universe doesn't exist. Like, well, your statement doesn't exist, okay? Uh, number three, therefore, a cause of the universe exists. Or you could say that the universe has a cause. This, this is a very, very popular argument by William Lane Craig. Once again, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Universe itself is evidence of that, okay? Therefore, there was a cause of the universe. Let's play this video here. This is Pretty cool, huh? So here's the question. What was the cause? We've got two choices. Matter, stuff. Well, once again, if people say, well, the universe began from the particles and the matter that exploded, what's the question that we ask? Where did that come from? Okay? And people say, well, well, where did God come from? Okay? We understand that God, well, actually, we're getting into that in just a second here. But secondly, it would be something, or rather we could say someone not governed by entropy, meaning a non-physical uh, being. So here's, here's um, if you want to write these down, this would actually be a very, very good way to respond to when people say, okay, well, you're telling me that if I say that the Big Bang came from physical stuff, that that's only pushing it back one step, but all that you say is God eternal. What, God is eternal, what evidence do you have that God gets an exemption from this argument? Uh, number one, the cause for the beginning of the universe is immutable and spiritual. Immutable means not subject to change, okay? Which means that it's not affected by something. Okay, for example, we're affected by the weather. We're affected by the food that we eat. We're affected by the words that we hear. So therefore, we are not superior over those things. Where God brought everything into existence, so he is not affected by his creation. Um, and spiritual, that means, why, why, would this, why would this be huge for us to understand that God has to be spiritual? Unlike the Mormons who claim that God has a body. Why is this a big deal? I want to take a stab at that. This argument, you mean, because if he's 
physical needs subject to Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Ben said he's he's got to be spiritual, or the otherwise he's subject to entropy. And we can actually say that if God is not spiritual, then God, we're, we're not. I think that we have precedent from Elijah for this type type of talk. But if God is not a spiritual being, then God probably is pretty close to needing to be on Medicare. Okay. Whether you adopt a young earth or an old earth, if God has a body, God has to have some kind of dental plan, I mean, massive types of medicine to keep him going. Because that's a long time to live for anything physical, which obviously the Bible says that God does not have a body. Number two, uh, the cause is without beginning or cause. Why is this significant? Go back to our dominoes thing, right? There's got to be a cause. In other words, Aristotle understood there's got to be an unmoved mover. There's got to be a beginning point that has no cause. Number three, there is only one cause. Okay? Um, some people say, well, couldn't it, have been, couldn't it have been multiple gods? Well, there's a little rule here um, that you'll find in logic textbooks called Occam's Razor. And it is, postulates must not be multiplied without necessity. You can write an equal sign next to that and say the simplest explanation must be true. Okay? For example, like let's say that you're, that you're walking out to get the paper, all right? And you find a branch laying in your yard. Imagine if there's a tree that's in your yard. You find the branch there in your yard. Would it maybe be a better explanation to say that we had a strong wind last night or... This was somehow dropped out of a secret U.S. government plane at 30,000 feet. And this is, you see where I'm going with this? There's no reason to multiply the cause. That's one of the, actually, what philosophers now understand, that's one of the reasons why you can, outside of Scripture, hold to monotheism, that God is one. Because there's no reason to believe that there needs to be multiple gods to create the world. You say, well, well if you've got an all-powerful being, if you've got some, some powerful spiritual being that's always existed, why would he need a backup? Because if you can live forever, then you probably don't need too much help, right? And that's the God that we serve. So if you say amen. Okay. Uh, number four, the cause is unimaginably powerful, and number five, I love this. The cause is personal. When you see purpose in the world, us, when you see things that, that grow, that produce fruit, that procreate, when you see purpose and point and design, that's how one of the reasons that we can know that God is a personal being. Because if, unlike our, our Star Wars friends, you know, like God is a force, okay, just, just a force like gravity or electricity, those things don't purposefully do things, right? They just simply react. They have no free will where God has ultimate ability to do that. And I think this is cool, too, because the fact that God is personal and he created us as personal beings, that's evidence that God desires a relationship with us. And uh, actually, point, point one through five comes from uh, Dr. Greg Welty, uh, a professor at, at Southwestern. He's actually not teaching at uh, Southeastern, but great guy. So, all of that to say, we come back and we're looking over Moses' shoulder, knowing what we know now, and we see this. So you guys ready to read some Hebrew out loud? Okay, all right. And actually, you can do this, and it'd be really, really awesome, uh, maybe at a... At a 
I've got to be very, very careful here. I'm not going to say that. I was going to say if you were at a certain crusade and it was uh, things were being spoken, people, if you, if you spoke this, people may mistake that for uh, a so-called gift of the Spirit. Um, yeah. Ben said it. Okay. The first one here, um, let's say bar a sheet. Bar a sheet. Okay. Bara. Just to create. Elohim. Elohim. That's cool, right? God. Notice the im on the end. Like even a lot of um, Middle Eastern languages, like the uh, the Mujahideen, the, the the fighters. Okay. Anytime you say you see im on the end of like a Hebrew Arabic type of word, it means plural, which that literally means a plural of respect. Doesn't mean that God is many. But when it speaks of God, like we talked about, um, I think it was for our Trinity message about Jerusalem. That is plural, and some theologians think that that is a picture of um, the new Jerusalem that will come, that it's not just the physical one here, but there will be one that God will create, like Genesis chapter chapter 1. So, um, 8. Kind of like what we're going to do at Hardy's here in a little bit. Okay. 8. Um, Hashamim. Hashamim. Yes. yes, we're getting it. Uh, Va 8. It's like if you're a German and you just went to um, Hardy's. Um, <laughs> ha Eretz. All right, very good. And that is the original. By the way, let me just say, whenever you see Hebrew text, that looks crazy, doesn't it? The fact that we actually have Hebrew that we can read today, this is an ancient Semitic Near Eastern language, is evidence, I believe, of the existence of God because the Jews have never been a numerous people. They've never been a people who've been able to really effectively defend themselves well. Their history is like we get slaughtered to the point to where we're almost all dead, and then God gives us reprieve, we reproduce, then we get slaughtered again. The fact that we have Jews today... I think is an evidence of, of the, the providence of God. Amen? Like it's an awesome thing. So the fact that you guys just read Hebrew tonight um, is exactly what was penned thousands of years ago in the Bible. And that's awesome. So the Bible clearly teaches that the universe had a beginning and it was God who did it. Um, question number two. <clears throat> this is honestly where a lot of um, contention comes in the church. How many of you have ever wondered about the age of the earth? Okay, probably most is like how how old is it actually? Um, in Genesis chapter one, um, we don't have time to walk through the whole thing. I'm going to give you an overview here. I'm going to give you two positions. In fact, if you want to do some more research, there on page uh, number two it would be chart 25. We've got all different types of perspectives on Genesis one. Um, if you want to go check that out later, but I've just kind of uh, summarized them. For tonight, we're going to look at number one, the young earth and the old earth, okay? The position for young earth, and by the way, I'll just write down, they believe that young earth believes it's about six to 10,000 years old, okay? Um, and, and just to let you guys know where I stand, I have friends on both sides of this. I have professors on both sides of this. In my work at Southwestern, I, I, I think that we can fellowship with brothers and sisters on both sides. But this, the first position, just because it's the plain reading of the text, um, I would call myself a, a young earth guy. So that's kind of where I stand. And, uh, but we're going to be honest and, and look at two sides here. 
One reason um, why people would hold to this is because the Hebrew word for day, yom, let's everybody say yom, yom, okay? It's like when you're there with the kids at Bible school, you say, how was... How are the cookies? And they say yum. You're like, you just spoke Hebrew. You're an awesome kid. Okay? It means, it means day. Okay? Most of the time it means day. Uh, second reason is if we look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 5 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 8, verse 13, 19, 23, and 31, we see that after it talks about the day, it talks about evening and morning. So... It's kind of hard to have evening and morning outside of a, of a 24-hour hour day in our, in our universe. Number three, days of creation were numbered uh, only when used with 24-hour periods uh, in the Bible. Okay, So days of creation were numbered. You have six days of creation. Number four, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, when the Bible says um, that you shall only work six yom. I think that would be yomim. Uh, but six days, it uses it for a literal 24-hour period of time. Okay, so six days. Number five, it would be impossible for life to survive for millions of years between day three and day four without light. Okay, let, let's look at that very quickly. Verse number 11, Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetables, vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. <clears throat> Uh, and which is their seed, each according to its own kind, to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And then in verse number 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So if you hold that, um, they were not literal 24-hour periods of time. You would have maybe millions of years for life to exist, plants and things of that nature to exist without light. Number six, um, and this, this is kind of it for me because everybody has a source of authority. Mine is the Bible, and the plainest reading of the text is that it is literal 24-hour periods of time. Um, one of the difficulties of this view would be starlight and time. Um, when you look and you observe uh, stars uh, that will be millions of light years away, a light moves at what is 186,000 miles per, per second. That's pretty fast when you think about how far that's going to be in a year. So people say, well, how can the earth be young if we see um, the light years? And actually a book that I would recommend to you, I had to show his picture, Dr. Russell Humphreys. He's a, a nuclear physicist. He definitely has the buccaneer mustache down pat. Can you guys say... Um, you would not want to have that guy boarding your ship. So he wrote a really cool book called Starlight in Time. That can be a little disturbing when you see large <laughs> pictures like that, can it? Um, but you can pick that up for, for fairly cheap at Christian Bookstore or Amazon. Starlight in Time, Solving the, most, the Puzzle of Distant Starlight in a Young Universe. So he's taken a stab at trying to reconcile a young earth with this. Um, I would, it's a very, very debated book. He's getting hit by all different directions, but that's something if you wanted to read it, um, you could. So here's the second position, the old earth. Um, to say that, number one, the days are figurative, not literal. Uh, second reason would be that the word yom is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, <clears throat> um, for the six-day period of creation. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that God 
that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So a person for the old earth view would say, well, it's used for the period of creation, day one through six. Number three, uh, the third day the trees grow to maturity in one yom, or one day. And so normally we don't see that happen today. It takes a little longer. Number four, uh, Adam's activities on the sixth day would be naming the animals. He can't find a match, so he goes to sleep, loses a rib, gets a wife. Um, some people say that that's a lot to do in one day. Um, be, a, be, a, be a full day. Um, so, um, which, which again, let, let me give a little bit of commentary. I don't know if we have time for, for that. Um, the, third, the third issue here with the third day, that is, that's always made me laugh. Um, but I, I would say that, that the third day, when the trees grow to maturity in one day, um, I don't think that we can say because we don't see that today that it didn't happen then. Because God created Adam. We don't know how old he was, but he wasn't an infant. That would be very awkward if you had, you know, like Adam and Eve, you know, like, like Sammy and little Mrs. Sammy waddling around. That would be a little, little weird there. Exactly, and that's, that's, that's the point, you know, to say that just because we don't see it that way now, we can't disprove that it wasn't that way then. Um, some difficulties with this view, um, a young earth person would say that it seems to rely on scientific hypotheses before the Bible as a kind of higher authority. So instead of coming to the text first and saying, what does the text clearly say? Say, what does science say? And let's interpret the Bible by that. Uh, number two would be a possibly troubling hermeneutic. Um, this would be a good word to learn here, hermeneutic. It just means how you interpret the Bible. Um, um, it would be a, what's that? It just because it sounds so cool. Yeah, actually, you could throw that out if somebody comes at you, hermeneutics, you know, and they don't know what's, if that's a rival gang or what's going on, you know, and they just drop, stop, and roll. Um, but but, but here, here, this is the reason why it would be a troubling way to interpret the Bible. It means that every time science or scientific theory seems to discount the Bible, we scrap the Bible until we can find a way for it to agree with science, instead of saying, this is God's word, let science catch up to it. You see, it depends, once again, on, on presuppositions and, and authority. You could also say it would be scientific theory over sacred truth. Now, let me also say, there are godly men who hold this view, okay? Um, in fact, we're going to read the Spurgeon quote in just a second. I normally don't put a lot of quotes in there. But let me give you this quote by Norman Geisler, just so that we understand what's at stake here with the age of the earth. He says, There is no de demonstrated contradiction of fact between Genesis 1 and science. There is only a conflict of interpretation. But in either case, it is not a question of the inspiration of Scripture, but of the interpretation of Scripture and of the scientific data. Do you see the difference there? You can take a person who says it is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. It's all true. But what we're disagreeing with is actually how you interpret it. You see the difference? If you say somebody says this is garbage, okay, 
It's not true. Here's what is true science. We've got a great Charles Spurgeon quote, and I, I included this whole thing. It's a little lengthy, but follow with me. And this is so true. And he wrote this back, I think, in, in 1887. He says, We are invited, brethren, most earnestly to go away from the old-fashioned belief of our forefathers because of the supposed discoveries of science. What is science? The method by which man tries to conceal his ignorance. And that may be a little, little harsh. Okay, let me, let me stop here. I love science. The first um, class they ever let me teach in college are like, we have a history and methods of science class. Would you like to teach that? And I was like, you know, the Napoleon Dynamite moment. Yes, I would. You know, I mean, absolutely, man. Let me, people are like, you are lame. I'm like, this is awesome. You know, it's just all sorts of things. And, and so I, science is a great tool. But, but notice how Spurgeon makes his argument here. Okay. He says, it should not be so, but it is. You are not to be dogmatical in theology, my brethren. It is wicked. But for scientific men, it is the correct thing. You are never to assert anything very strongly, but scientists may boldly assert what they cannot prove and may demand a faith far more credulous than any we possess. Forsooth, I love, by the way, you can throw that out too, the old English word. Forsooth, just start that out. Forsooth, would you like to go to Hardy's tonight? Okay. Um, forsooth, you and I are to, to take our Bibles and shape, this is great, you and I are to take our Bibles and shape and mold our belief according to the ever-shifting teachings of so-called scientific men. What folly is this? Why the march of science, falsely so-called, through the world may be traced by exploded fallacies and abandoned theories. Former explorers once adorned are now ridiculed. The continual exposure of false hypotheses is a matter of universal notoriety. You may tell where the learned have encamped by the debris left behind of suppositions and theories as plentiful as broken bottles. As the quacks who ruled the world of medicine in one age are the scorn of the next, so has it been and so will it be with your atheistical savants and pretenders to science. But they remind us of, quote, facts. Are they not yet ashamed to use the word? Wonderful facts made to order and twisted to their will to overthrow the actual facts which the pen of God himself has recorded. Yeah. At that point, you say, let's have every head bowed and every eye closed and start the invitation. <laughs> and any, I think any legit, and by the way, Sue, Sue is a legit science teacher here, so everything that I got wrong tonight or questions, I'm just going to refer you to Sue, and she'll, <laughs> she'll take care of it. But I think that any true scientist is going to, under, going to let you know, this is a theory, this is what we think that we can do outside of observational reproduced science. Okay? We can't reproduce the past, but we can definitely um, understand what we see through telescope lens. So... This brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1-1. I hope that you never, that we never read this verse the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, um, do we have any, any questions? I think we have like 60 seconds before 8 o'clock. But we can maybe be non-Baptist, and if we have anything to discuss, we can go past 8. If any, any questions about this? Yeah. My question is more of an observation because at the end we're talking about not being dogmatic about it. The 
I think we've talked about this. There was a, a big row at a high school convention between people that were old earth and people mm. young earth. And it got ugly real fast mm. and people started getting very childish and going into character assassination. Mm. So I think it, it's a very good to remember that this is one of those things that's not essential to the faith. Everyone can believe in Christ and not believe in a young earth or an old earth. But the point is, is to be rational about it and be able to discuss it without creating so much passion that you alienate a brother mm. or, worse yet, alienate someone who is not yet even a believer. Yeah. Which that particular circumstance, I think, really probably did. Mm. Yeah, good, good point. I'm sure that most of us... I would hope that most of us would not have that had that kind of experience in the past where we had somebody, like I told you about the guy at Best Buy who was poking me in the chest about how the Trinity is not true. You know, that's a, that's a big issue. You don't give that one away. But I think, honestly, um, with issues of, of, of the age of the earth, like I told you, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a young earth guy, um, and that's, that's where I come from because it's, for me it's the text first. And maybe one day we'll be able to reconcile starlight. There have been some attempts to do that, but not to the point that I would, I would teach on that and say this is it. Um, but I, I think that, that we should understand the character of Christ and humility and that we're not Christ. So issues like this to where the Bible is clear that, number one, the universe had a beginning. It was caused by God. He didn't need any help, and he's personal. That's clear, Okay. And even when we discuss things um, such as the age of the earth, let it be with utmost humility. Okay, I want this to be in my life. Utmost humility and knowledge that I don't know everything. And what I've found a lot of times, it's when we get so mad uh, at people over, over certain issues that are outside of the fundamentals of the faith, it's areas that we really don't know that much about anyway. But we heard somebody speak about it, and we liked them, and therefore, anybody who doesn't line up with that is anathema. But, um, <laughs> yes? You are so narrow about God aging if you were physical. Uh-huh. Uh, what about the glorified resurrection of Christ? You can see that the right hand of the Father is where it's placed. Is there a picture of anything that you right. access to the same Jesus? Right. No, in other words, how would the glorified body that Jesus has and that we will receive be outside of uh, entropy. In other words, why? Well, no, go ahead. He also had, of course, he was he was a man, I think he was in the Old Testament as well. Right. He appears because the burning bush and a few other things. Mm-hmm. How do you explain the resurrected body? And of course, he is physical, but in a glorified body. Mm-hmm. He has been in heaven for thousands, over a thousand years. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh huh. It 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 depends upon what the glorified body is, and I think the hang-up for most of us is that we hear the word body, and what is our only frame of reference? What we see, and when it speaks of a glorified body, um, we don't actually know a hundred percent what that is. You know why? We've never actually observed it. But when scripture says that heaven is not just a state, but it's a place, 
and that God is in control of heaven, I don't think that that's any, any objection to um, heaven being real. Because if heaven's a state, then entropy doesn't exist. It's kind of like a state when you're asleep, you know, and you're in your own mind. But if heaven is an actual place, then there may be something uh, such as entropy. But it depends upon what a glorified body is. And I know the glorified body is qualitatively different than ours, right? Because if it wasn't, then it wouldn't have used the separation term, the, qual- the qualifier, glorified. So really, that's, that's, an, that's a question that we don't know exactly what it is, but we know what it's not. And if it's not this, then it's not going to be subject to what this is subject to. Right, right. Which that raises the question of how can something non-physical affect physical things? And the greatest illustration of that is the mind, right? I think of every movement that we do, um, unless you have a hardcore atheistic philosopher who believes that we're nothing more than chemicals, they have to understand that the brain and the mind are two separate things. The mind is what tells the brain to act. In other words, the mind, like who you are. We could call it the soul or the spirit. Because if God doesn't exist, then we're simply chemicals, and chemicals have chemical reactions. But if God does exist, then we do have a spirit, we do have a soul. So we could say that in that sense of Jesus walking through walls, that God being not physical, but God is what? Spirit. But obviously we know that spirit, non-physical reality, can affect the physical realm. Why? Well, Genesis 1.1. God, not being physical, not being subject to physical laws, brought all physicality into existence. And that's really, really cool um, when you think about that. So really, in a sense, it liberates, right? It liberates us from um, being contained in a body to actually have to get in cars and so forth. But Does that muddy the water? Yeah. All right. Good deal. All right. Any, anything else before we, before we go? All right. Well, good deal. Thank you guys for, for listening through this. I hope that it's, uh, it's helped. And uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray and, and ask the Lord that we could use this for him.